0: Good morning. My name is Paul. If we haven't had the opportunity to meet yet, I'm excited to kick off this new series called Win the Day with you guys. And a gentleman named Tony Campola, who who is a Christian teacher and author, he kind of was, one of the things he became known for was he would often ask people, um, how long have you lived? Which can be a dangerous question if you pose it to the wrong person, woman, um, if you ask in the wrong circumstance. But he would ask this question, not about minutes, but about moments. And people would usually respond with, you know, I'm, I'm 34, I'm 35, I'm 29 forever. It's always 29 is the answer to the question. Uh, but, but he would ask, what are the, where, how long, if you took the time where you say, man, this is when my heart was really alive. Like this is when I was really doing what I wanted to do, what I was meant to do, what I enjoy doing. If you were to calculate the length of your life in moments that you would say really mattered, How long have you been, how long have you lived? You know, for me, it's a lot of different things and you don't have to enjoy life the same way that I do. But just even recently when I was in Denver and I was standing up on the edge of Pikes Peak at like a 200 foot drop and my feet are just inches from it and there's this mountain view all around you and there's evidence of mountain goats that have been there. Like, I mean, it's just this incredible thing where I just, my heart is like, this is incredible. I'll never forget this moment. What are some moments that you'll never forget? Talk to me, church. Come on. I picked on you last week's second service. You need to get a little more vocal. What are the moments you'll never forget? Getting married. Atta boy, Andrew. You see the way Keisha looked at him like, yes, that's right. Getting married is your best moment ever. All right. What else? What are some moments you'll always hold on to? Kids being born. Absolutely. Men, we didn't do much for that moment. But women, you rock. What else? salvation the day where we said yes to jesus absolutely what else when you got your dog that's most it's almost a dog it's it's a little it's a little (laughs) there's those moments and i am afraid that they're too far in like they're, they're few too few and far between And we've often measured our life, I think, in the wrong way, and we've missed moving towards what matters. And so this idea that time is measured in minutes, but life is measured in moments. And so what are the moments that you're moving towards that matters? What are the moments that you're moving towards that matters? Because I believe that there's dreams and there's goals and there's visions that, that God sets in our heart, things that we need to do, but we get so busy with just keeping up with the things that are around us that we never actually progress towards them. And in fact, our mind is kind of so so in two different places. A recent study that was done, it said 46.9% people, most people are thinking about something other than what they're doing at the present moment. So stop thinking about lunch. Pay attention in church. 46.9% of the room, your mind was in the wrong place according to the study. Be here with me. Because when we're half present, half of the time, we're only experiencing half of our life. We need to be in the moment that we're in. We need to live those moments out together. Because I understand anxiety and worry. It's like we start thinking about the future and the weight just gets heavier and heavier on our shoulders. And it like moves us out of the moment that we know that we should be in. And it's crazy how anxiety and stress really hasn't changed much from generations to generations, from scriptural times to even like 1871. Uh, William Osler, in the account of his life, He, he, he's well known. He helped start John Hopkins Hospital. It was one of the first places where they did residency programs. He wrote the medical handbook of his era, of his lifetime. He authored it. He was a renowned guy, but when he was studying medicine, he recounted that he was at a point of a nervous breakdown where he was just ready to quit. His mind was so worried about the future and the what ifs that he reached a breaking point. And, and he did incredible things with his life. And so it's funny to think that as a 20-year-old, he was ready to just call it quits. And by his own account, he says that he came across this quote and it changed him significantly. And, and the quote was, our grand business undoubtedly is not to see what lies dimly at a distance, but to do what lies clearly at hand. Not to see what lies dimly at a distance, but to do what lies clearly at hand. Now, I know I'm not the only person in the room who has ever struggled and been so focused on trying to figure out what's ahead that they miss the things that are right in front of them, the critical moments that are right there with them, and this is what it'll end up doing to you, and this is the next quote we'll put up, the load of tomorrow added to that of yesterday carried today makes the strongest falter. The load of tomorrow added to that of yesterday carried today makes the strongest falter. Now, now, these concepts are ones that I want to start you off with because they are biblical concepts that we are supposed to be focused in today. We're supposed to forget what is behind and press on towards what is ahead. But our mind and our heart and our energy is supposed to be in this moment. And I'll tell you that that comes from Matthew 6:11. Give us this day our daily bread. Psalm 118, 24. Today is the day that the Lord has made. Luke 9:23. Take up your cross daily. Lamentations 3.22, his mercies are new every morning. Don't let the sun go down on your anger, Ephesians 4.26. And then Matthew 6.24, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow has enough worries of its own. We are supposed to live in the day, right? But we carry all of this extra baggage. And so this is the way that Mark Batterson likes to say it. He says, yesterday is history, tomorrow is mystery, our job is to win the day. And so church, mothers, fathers, friends, the thing that you're worried about, the thing that's been taking up anxious space in your mind, whether it's something that happened in the past or what might happen in the future, biblically speaking, God would want you to look and say, just today. If it's on your heart, You've got to get in better physical shape. It's not about the days at the gym later. It's about, am I making healthy choices today? If it's, I need to walk more closely with Jesus, it's not about what will happen, what prayers will get answered, what won't. It's, am I spending time with God and studying scripture today? And the beautiful thing is, you can win this day. You can win this day. You can do today right. And you may not always get it right, but God has you in this place where he says, you can do what you're called to do today. And almost anyone can accomplish almost anything if they work at it hard enough, long enough, and smart enough. And so when you string a couple days of winning the day together, the theological term is sanctification. Another term is just a winning streak. When you get those things going, that's when life change happens. But our focus always has to be, In today. And so, over the course of the next seven weeks, we're going to go through seven habits, seven ways that we interact with something in our life that helps us win the day and move towards the dreams that God would want us to be pursuing. And today's habit is called flipping the script. Flipping the script. There are times where you will get a narrative and a storyline about the way that your life has been is going and always will be going that is not a narrative that God would speak to you. It is not the truth that scripture teaches to you. And so we often give up on dreams, on hopes, on visions that God has put on our heart because we just feel like it's just too impossible for us. And I'm going to tell you, almost anyone can do almost anything if they work at it hard enough, long enough, and smart enough. Yes, even if you're five foot three, you can make it into the NBA. Probably not if you're over 30. I did say almost but you dial back to Muggsy Bowes in 1986, five foot three, 134 pounds. He won the NBA dunk contest, people. If anybody had excuses to move away from what his heart was passionate about, Muggsy's a great example of that. And so I think most of the time, our failure to move towards what God would want us to do with our life, our failure to move towards the dreams that he's rooted in our heart, It doesn't really have to do with the challenges that will be there. It just has to do with the system that we have set up because the system that you live your life in is perfectly designed to give you the results that you've always gotten. And if you don't like the results that you've always got from the system that you live, then you need to make make changes to the system. And the very first place that you have to start to make changes is the way that you think. The way that you think about your story, the script that that is written there, we need to to understand God is the true narrator of the script of my life, the negative voices from the world, from people who should have been encouragement, but they were destructive. They don't get to narrate my life. My negative view of myself does not get to narrate my life anymore. God, in the truth of his word, is gonna tell me about my life, my future, and my destiny, and he is the only one authority who can really speak over that. And, and 2000 and 2001, or 2002 yeah, that, that was only like 20 years ago, 2020 and 2021, I, I think some of us may have had some difficulties in 2020, 2021. Anybody else? Yeah, some challenges? Yeah, a few of you? All right. The rest of you guys, it was great. You've loved the pandemic, apparently. Um, for, for us, you've had some difficulties. I want to tell you that this, these last few years we've been wa- walking through, like, you will actually be the one who chooses if it was a dumpster fire or if it was a refiner's fire. Like your difficulty of what you've been through, it can become something that you learn, or it can be some, become something that's destructive to you. But the only person who will really choose that is you. Because God is able to take and redeem these times and use them for something beneficial in your life. And your thinking is so powerful. I mean, it, it It can direct your attitude. It can direct your relationships, your thinking. It can change your body biologically. You know that if you've ever had police lights turn on behind you when you were speeding and like all of a sudden just your thoughts, like you're sweating and you're not even moving because your mind has that much power over you in so many different situations. And so when we allow these negative and false voices to control the way that we think about the story that God's gonna write in our life, it's destructive. And today we're going to look at the life of Joseph some as an example because he is someone that, that, man, he went through some incredibly destructive things, but the way that he thought about it was so powerful and so transformational that I believe it's going to be helpful for some of you guys. And if you don't have any context for the person of Joseph, in, in the book of Genesis, Joseph was the 11th brother, the youngest at the time of 10 other older brothers, which that can be a tough life situation. Could you imagine 10 older brothers around you all the time? Well, it was okay for him because he was like the favored son. Like he was the spoiled one. He, as a teenager, just don't look at your siblings. <laughs> he was sent as a teenager to go check on like the 30-year-olds and see if they were performing up to what he thought they should be doing. Could you imagine... A 15-year-old coming to you when you're in your 30s and being like, hey, I think you need to be working a little harder. Like, Like the animosity would be there very naturally. And then in the life of Joseph, this was further complicated, and this is an important theological truth to it, that Joseph received a dream that was from God. Like Joseph heard right. And this dream that he had, this vision, was a vision of his older brothers, even his father, bowing down to Joseph. Now that could be offensive. And I can only imagine that as a teenager presented that to his older brothers, it was received very offensively. And and we know that because his brothers then plotted to kill him. (coughs) They decided we're just gonna, we're gonna off him. Like, like we're not gonna have this around, this disrespect, this, this is ridiculous. He gets things that we don't have. He gets respect and love from our father that we don't have, and our life will be tremendously better if we just kill the kid. And so when they went to start to do it and lay hands on him, they decided to just throw him in a pit instead. And rather than leave him to die, they saw an opportunity to sell him into slavery. Now we hear the story, and especially if you've been around church for a long time, you can begin to lose the skin in this story, but I just want you for a minute to try to put your mind to the, the place of being 17 years old, being in a very happy place where you have everything that you need. And in chains, you're being led away with tears in your eyes, looking back at your brother and your home. Like the trauma of that, <clears throat> of that would be real. I can't imagine the difficulty that he faced trying to sleep at night, thinking about what his brothers had done for him as he was on his way into Egypt and then sold in Egypt into slavery within a household. And Joseph at 17 was sold into slavery and he spent 13 years either in slavery or in prison. He started off in slavery and then he was falsely accused of attempting to do something inappropriate to his master's wife, when in reality, he walked with integrity and she threw herself at him and he said no, and he ended up in prison for it. Talk about someone who had excuses to say, God, why me? Why this? And he's in prison and and he comes across two men, a butler and a cupbearer who have a dream and God gives him an interpretation for the dream. And says, one of you guys are going to be put back into service. One of you guys are going to be put to death. Um, You who's put him back into service to the Pharaoh, remember me when you get out. And he gets out. And two more years, Joseph is in prison after that. So 13 years of suffering, 13 years. If I just stand here silent for 13 seconds, it becomes almost like unbearable. I love awkwardness good. I enjoy it. But 13 years, God, where are you? 13 years, I can't believe they did that to me. 13 years, how could they treat me like this? 13 years of just re-going through the trauma in his mind to the point where the, the Pharaoh has a dream, has a vision. And then the, the cupbearer says, oh yeah, I know a guy, he's in your prison and brings him out. And God establishes Joseph in a place where God gives him a vision that's gonna, that there's gonna be years of plenty, there's gonna be years of famine. And so prepare for the famine now. And so Pharaoh puts Joseph in charge of everything. Pharaoh actually gives Joseph a new name. Joseph has a new identity and a new life. He has an Egyptian wife. He is 13 years removed from his family at the beginning of this. Things are starting over. Things are different. And then the famine comes just as predicted. And Egypt is the only place that has things in store. The only place where you can get food. Other places are starving to death. And it affects Joseph's family. And Joseph is the one in leadership and distribution of what has been saved. And can you imagine the moment where his brothers walk into the room? I mean, if his theology worked the way that most of our theology worked well, God, you tried to hurt me and God put me in a position of authority. So now that I can settle the score, like you sold me into slavery, God must want me to sell you into slavery now, because I'm in this position where I can do you to you the damage that you did to me. But Joseph actually handled it, handled it quite differently. And in fact, it's interesting because I think that it would have been easy for Joseph to just say, you know what? Now my name is Zaphnath Panea. I'm not Joseph anymore. You killed your brother. Your brother died in slavery. Your brother died in jail. I am this Egyptian person now. I don't care about you. I won't feed you. You get nothing from me. But Joseph remembered and held on to his identity. And in Genesis 45 verse three, he spoke to them after, after, I think, probably internally deciding what he wanted to do. And he said, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? The passage says his brothers were speechless. They were stunned to realize that Joseph was standing there in front of them. I bet they were. I think that when a lot of us go through trauma, we kind of take the road of, I'm not that person anymore. That person got hurt, and I don't want to get hurt again, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the new name. I'm going to be the, the way that culture says that I should be to protect myself. I got hurt when I was open, and so I'll never be open again, and so now I'm this different person. I'll, I'll just assume this new name, this new identity. And culture, through biblical times and through today, they love to try to redefine something that has ex- existed to try to change what it will be in the future. I mean, we see things get relabeled and this is why the uh, Pharaoh gave Joseph a new name. That's why he named him Zaphonaphanea. Same thing in, in, in Daniel, when Daniel was renamed Belshazzar because Daniel meant that God is my judge, El, like the God of the Hebrews and his name was changed to Belshazzar, which it, it is you know, the, the foreign God, Bel. Um, and Bel will protect me is what his name became. And Daniel had to say, no, the culture is not gonna define who I am. In the same way, Joseph called back to know, this is who I, like, I am Joseph. And so who, who are you? Where does your name derive from? Your life might've pushed you to become someone you're not, but are you the person that God would say that you're supposed to be? There's an interesting blessing in the Old Testament, number six, you're familiar with it if you've been in church at all. I wanna read you the whole context of it because there's another blessing within that that, that often is missed. In verse 22, the Lord said to Moses, he's giving him instructions. says, tell Aaron and his sons, those were the priests. <clears throat> he said to the priest, this is how you're supposed to bless the Israelites. Say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace. So they will put my name on the Israelites and I will bless them. God ascribes his name to his people. God ascribes part of your identity is that I've put my image in you is what God would say. Both male and female were created in the image of God, but bigger and deeper and further than that is he says, I put my name on you because you are in my family. You have been adopted. You are heirs with Christ. You carry my name. My people called by my name, but you also carry my name. And so the way that you describe yourself, does it line up with how God would describe one of his children? The way that you think about what you should be. And so, so point number one in this is, is that you need to know your name. You need to know your name. You are called by name by your heavenly father. And this is the struggle. This is the psychological struggle. is that there's, this, is, this is described of how we think about ourselves. It is, the saying is, I'm not who I think I am. I'm not what you think i am i am what i think you think i am we often decide who we are based on what other people think about us instead of looking and saying this is who god says i am called to be and so this is who i will become the greatest authority over who you are supposed to be is your heavenly father not your culture not the person who brought abuse and trauma into your life and you've given them far too much power for far too long to control your future based off of what happened in the past, and you need to allow God to set you free from that. You have a name, you have a heavenly father, and he has a purpose for you. And so, the, the second part of flipping our script is for well, the first part is knowing our name. We got we to understand who we are called to be in Christ. The second part of flipping our script is fixing our focus. What we focus on controls so much. And so when we see Joseph, Joseph looked at the situation and he focused on something that was different than what I think I would naturally want to focus on as he walked through. The psychological term is cognitive reappraisal, that he looked over his past in his life, and he decided to explain it to himself in a different way than maybe we would have explained it to to ourselves. Uh, Here's kind of the saying for you, your explanations are more important than your experience. Your explanations are more important than your experience. Joseph went through betrayal, he went through slavery, he went through prison, but then he explained what happened to him like this in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. He spoke to his brothers. He didn't let them off the hook. Like he didn't pretend like it never happened. He said, you intended to harm me. But God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. I love that it doesn't gloss over what happened. It's not like pretend like the pain never happened. That's not what healing looks like. Healing is dealing with what's happened and the reality of it and growing through it. Like, you you can grow through what you go through, but whatever you run from, you'll rerun. Like, you're going to see it again. And you know that in your past and the things that you've struggled with, the things that you've been hurt by and you haven't dealt with it, you haven't brought it out to the open, it continues to pop up again and again in your life. And if you want to be free of it, you actually have to deal with it. You actually have to bring it out into the light. And so Joseph, the way that he looked at what happened, he said, this is what you meant to do, this is, what, this is the harm that it caused me, but God is gonna use this for something different. God, in fact, used this to save many people. And when you are able to go through this cognitive reappraisal where you look back and you say, okay, how can God use the pain from my past? It enables you to do things in your future that you wouldn't have expected yourself to be able to do. Go back to a shepherd. Imagine a shepherd out caring for his flock and, all, and he sees a lion. And he would ask himself, is the the flock worth fighting a lion? Well, the shepherd was was a boy named David, and he said yes. And he he figured out how to fight off a lion. He also, in Scripture, it says that he figured out how to fight off a bear. And say, why go through those difficulties? Why why go through that risk? Why, Why would God allow those kind of challenges to come into his life? Well, it prepared him as a young man that when he was walking up to the Israelite army and he heard a giant named Goliath cursing God and cursing the nation of Israel what, what scripture actually tells us is David said the same God who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from Goliath the smaller struggles will prepare you for bigger victories if you will allow it to Like the difficulties that you've walked through in 2020, 2021, they will enable you to do much more than you expected if you'll entrust them to the hands of God. When you decide, okay, things are happening that hurt, that are difficult, but in this day, I'm going to walk with integrity and I'm going to honor God and I'm going to win this day to the best that I can you put those together into a winning streak and God is gonna take you so much further than you ever would have expected to go. But it comes to this focus thing of how do I see the difficulties of the trial and the pain that I'm walking through? Because if I see this pain as practice for what's to come, that something good is gonna come through it, that God will not waste a wound in my life, then I'm gonna to adapt to it differently. But if I just look at it as why me, why me, why me, I'm going to miss out on the lesson. I'm going to miss out on the learning. And so we have to, we have to fix, fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, because as our eyes are fixed on Jesus, we can walk through any of those storms. Pain can become practice when it's assigned a purpose. And we've got to look at it this way. God will use this. And so I won't waste this moment. The difficulty, I'm ready for it. The third thing in flipping the script is you, you have to change your story. You have to change your story. You have to bury our dead yesterdays. The, the things that happened that in the past, we need to understand it through God's eyes and we need to put it at rest because if we don't, it will consume our future. I wanna share with you a story of Queen Victoria. Uh, we don't do too much in the 1860 illustration except for today, which I've gone to twice, which is very strange, but um, this, this love story, I, I think, will maybe tug on, tug on your mind and tug on your heart a little bit. Queen Victoria wrote of her marriage um, to, to King Albert and said, I never, never spent such an evening. My dearest, dearest, dear Albert. His excessive love and affection gave me feelings of heavenly love and happiness I never could have hoped to have felt before. He clasped me in his arms and we kissed each other again and again. His beauty and sweetness and gentleness. Really, how can I ever be thankful enough to have such a husband? To be called by names of tenderness I have never yet heard used to me before was bliss beyond belief. Oh, this was the happiest day of my life. Queen had it bad, right? I mean, like she was in love. She was there. In some of her writings, she actually talked about how she wasn't fond of being pregnant. She thought newborn babies were ugly, but they had nine babies. So you know something was working right in that marriage, and it didn't appear to be a love for being pregnant. Her heart was there. The couple had been married 21 years when Prince Albert contracted typhoid fever and died. She was heartbroken. She had his room turned into a shrine every day for the rest of her life. She had the linens on Albert's bed changed and his clothes laid out and a basin of water poured for his morning shave. She even slept with Albert's nightshirt in her arms every night. The widow of Windsor rarely left the palace and she wore black The rest of her life. She died on January 22nd, 1901, but she stopped living when Albert died December 14th, 1861. Her family, her children, her nation needed her to bury what happened and live again. And it's not that the pain that she went through wasn't real, wasn't significant, wasn't life changing but it shouldn't have controlled all of her future. It's not that the pain that you went through wasn't real, wasn't significant, and wasn't life-changing, but it shouldn't control the rest of your future. And in fact, I believe that if you give it over to God, he will use it to build up your life. Band, if you guys will make your way up here, and and if you'd, you'd come help me, for a minute. I want to I illustrate it like this. There are things that happen in our life that are heavy things. When someone abandons you that was supposed to be there, it's a weight that can stay with you and it can affect your life. And if you hold it, after a while, it'll start to affect the way you live and the way that you stand. But we know that, you know, wounds, it's never just one. You know, if we go through getting abandoned and then we walk through abuse, we go through pain. How are you feeling? Is that, is that good? Do you want another one? Or is that, no, no, yeah. Life doesn't always allow you to opt out of more, does it? Addiction, pain, abuse, getting abandoned. When, when we walk through things like that, and I know you have, it will stay with you as long as you hold on to it. And it'll affect, like, high five, buddy. <laughs> Why can't you just do normal things? Why can't you have normal relationships? These things affect everything in the future. You, You give the worst hugs when you're like this. I don't know what's wrong with you. But I do know that when we take these things and we begin to lay them down, the work and the stress of life feels a little bit better. Relationships get a little bit better. But the burdens that we used to carry become blessings that we can give. They become foundations that we can stand on. The pain actually will become a platform that God will use in his kingdom to bless other people. And it's like when you lay it before God and Jesus says, all of you guys who are weary and carry heavy burdens, come to me for I will give you rest. Lay that down before the feet of God And the beautiful thing is he will take that that was falling on your shoulders and he'll use it to make a foundation that you will stand upon to bless other people. And I've seen it and I've felt it. As I've talked with young men who've grown up fatherless and I've said, hey, I understand that pain, but I also understand that your heavenly father can re-enter that blessing and can change your life in a way that you never would have expected. And I know it because I've walked it. And as there's pain in your past, I want to tell you, as you bring it out before God, as you confess it one to another, you will experience healing. And you won't just experience healing in your life. You'll get to see God heal others because of the testimony of what he's done in you. But you've got to choose to see the story different. It's not, I'm gonna be embarrassed if people find out this was part of my past. It's, I'm gonna be set free if I allow people to know what has happened in the past. The struggle with addiction, it has to come out to the light. The struggle with abuse, you have to let someone know that it happened. You confess it one to another and experience healing. And you set it down at the foot of the cross and you will meet Jesus there. And in the places where you thought you could never win, you'll experience victory. And the beautiful thing is you only have to win today. God's faithfulness will meet you in the tomorrow. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that we can take all of the things that are heavy on our heart and we can set them at your feet. We can trust them to your hands. And you enable us and you empower us to walk in freedom. And so allow us the courage to to go after the God-sized dreams that you have for us. Allow us to be blessings to other people with the things that we thought were going to destroy us, what what others would have meant to harm us. We know that you will take it, heal it, bring victory in it, and use it to bless other people. So Father, enable us to be a blessing to this city because we walk with you in closeness and authenticity. And we lay down our burdens before you. In Jesus' name.